The Guardian. Don't you Brits feel like celebrating those 14 days of sporting glory? Of course you do. So why not do it with a strictly unofficial, but suitably stylish philosophy football design t-shirt? This unique t-shirt is a wearable, chronological, and color-coded record of an unforgettable fortnight. And for Guardian and Observer podcast fans, we have a special offer of three pounds off and free post and packaging. Curious? Well, to see how good this unique t-shirt looks and to take advantage of our listeners' offer, just go to guardian.co.uk slash podcast offers. I dare you. Despite a valuable contribution to this debate, James ended his lecture with a line in which he claimed that the only reliable and perpetual guarantor of independence is profit. The reason his statement sat so uncomfortably is that profit without purpose is a recipe for disaster. Hello and welcome to Media Talk on day two of the Media Guardian Edinburgh International Television Festival. Today we're talking Liz Murdoch, Prince Harry and the Paralympics. And Richard Bacon takes Media Guardian to task. I'm John Plunkett and this is Media Talk from The Guardian. Previously on McTaggart. It was a time when the same people who wrote poetry also built bridges. Why was I even having to justify it? At one point I was asked, what is distinctive about the way we give away cash prizes? I don't know, in brown envelopes. What is at the heart of such a distorted society? Quote, broadcasting is at the heart of British society. The ability to generate a profitable return is fundamental to the continuation of the quality, plurality and independence that we value so highly. Sky is already a far more powerful commercial counterweight to the BBC than ITV ever was. These are the words of the BBC and its most ponderously anodyne. It's well on its way to being the most dominant force in broadcast media in this country. A long line of esteemed programme makers and broadcasters have delivered the McTaggart Lecture. Last night, it was Liz Murdoch's turn. Independence may be characterised by the absence of the apparatus of supervision and dependency, as James said. But independence from regulation and the freedom we need to innovate and grow is only democratically viable when we accept that we have a responsibility to each other and not just to our bottom line. Profit must be our servant, not our master. Joining me on the sofa are Kenton Allen, Chief Executive of Big Talk Productions and uh, Advisory Chair at this year's festival, of course. We've got Lorraine Hegarsey, Executive Chairman of Boom Pictures and former BBC One controller, and Dan Saber, The Guardian's Head of Media and Tech. But first, let's get some instant response from last night's Edinburgh International Conference Centre. My name's Alan Rusbridger from The Guardian. Interesting McTaggart. It was as Bill, i.e. she was positioning herself, I thought, very much as a, as a different kind of Murdoch. So she almost consciously took positions that were different from her brother of three years ago uh, and from her father. Pat Young, head of BBC in-house production. I mean, I, I think this idea that there must be a bigger purpose than just making profit 
I think is true for the newspaper industry, but is also true for the television industry. And I think that was one, a very powerful metaphor coming from a Murdoch, but also she made this point that you know, we need this higher purpose. And she suggested building community, telling great stories, inspiring people and building community, which is very in vain with uh, the, the post-Olympic vibe and sort of where people want to get to. So I thought it was a clever speech. I, I thought it maybe a little bit long, but I thought it's pretty much on the button. I'm Lisa Ophie and I'm the Managing Director of 24 Digital. What I think was the most exciting thing that she talked about was that kind of collision of broadcast and the online world. And I think that as a, as a sector, we do tend to undervalue what the YouTube generation and what YouTube as a platform um, is doing to creativity. Um, there's an immense amount that we can learn. As broadcasters, I think we, we tend to be, you know, we sit within this grey box in the corner of the room measured by Barb. And in a YouTube world, you sit intimately in somebody's face and they can tell you what they think on a personal level, on a daily basis. And I think there are huge amounts that each world can learn about each other. Um, and I think that world in which you have loads and loads of time to think about developing a programme and delivering it beautifully remain incredibly important. Hello, I'm Richard Bacon. I'm a broadcaster. I work for the BBC and quite a few other people too. The stuff she said about building a community where rather than talk at people, television should have a one-on-one -on -one relationship, if possible, with each viewer and have that relationship. So it becomes a, they're not all separately watching it. They become a community, not just a community through social media. Building a community is really powerful and I think potentially really valuable and all that stuff I, was fascinating to me. But I would say, uh, I would say that uh, Elizabeth Murdoch is definitely my favourite Murdoch. First up chaps, was it a late night? Uh, it was a relatively late night, yes, 1am. 1am, can you beat that down? Uh, it was a lively night. It was quite a good, quite, quite you a good fun. What time you went to bed that, that, that might that might be true actually. <laughs> but we had fun at the uh, we were at the McTaggart dinner and then at the uh, with those uh, house streets. Yeah, I love the fact that at the McTaggart dinner, uh, which overlooks the castle, that Steve Levitan, creator of Modern Foundry, thought that we'd arrange the fireworks especially for the McTaggart dinner, <laughs> and, and we haven't told them that we didn't yet. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's American budgets for you. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Lorraine, any true confessions from uh, your your post McTaggart evening? She went to see Russell Kane at the assembly rooms because I love to try and pack in something from the fringe as well. You went to the I real world? Yeah, I went to the... Well, yeah, to I don't know how real it was. <laughs> it's slightly unscientific, but uh, marks out of 10 for last night's McTaggart. How, uh, how, do you, how do you rate uh, this? I think it's a classic McTaggart. I would give it 10 out of 10. Says the advisory chair. But yeah, yep, still. That asked to do it, but, you know, it's not for me to really give marks on my own McTaggart booking, but I think she nailed it. Well, that's, that's Dan's job. Tell us, Dan, what do you think? Out of 10? It's pretty good, 7 or 8 out of 10. What? I, well, I'm being, I'm being generous. I'm, you know, harsh with the marks. I think, I think James Murdoch was a sort of probably the, the best one of recent times uh, because it was controversial, because he was at the sort of what we now see as sort of the peak of his power, but actually we thought was just sort of, you know, the beginning of Act Two, uh, 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 you know, and the resonance that it had even now. I think, you know, Liz Murdoch's is almost is a sort of bookend to that and a response to that. It doesn't mean it wasn't significant, but not quite I, that leap. I would just argue that because I think from a journalistic point of view, James was a better story. But in terms of a point of asking Elizabeth to do, which was to talk about creative leadership and a sort of call to arms for creativity, I think that was why it was a 10 out of 10 for me because she was on message in terms of what the festival was about. And the festival was about the, the creative business of television production and that's why she was doing it. She wasn't here to address the issues of the last 12 months. Yeah, Lorraine, I guess different people look for different things from McTaggart. As a journalist, you look for the news angle, as a, as a you know, the festival organisers, you look to, to address the themes of the festival. And, and for her, well, you know, what do you think, what was it for her? What, what did you get out of it? 
I think it was about positioning herself, um, both within our industry and also within the kind of Murdoch empire and in relation to what has been happening at News International and News Corps over the last year. So it sort of worked on several levels. I was particularly pleased that, you know, Kenton chose to have a woman giving the McTaggart. I mean, it is ridiculous that it's only once every 17 years, as Liz herself pointed out. There are plenty of opinionated women in this industry and, um, you know, somehow uh, the Edinburgh Festival keeps ignoring them. Or the Edinburgh it, was, well, I think it was very sad that she, she mentioned Andrew Walkford and it was very, you do think that was a missed opportunity that the, the late, great Andrew Walkford never gave a McTaggart lecture. So, I mean, hopefully that, that will be borne in mind when we're in future McTaggart bookings. You have to book the best person for is the gig. Your, is it your decision, Kenton? How does, that, how does that booking process work? I mean, pretty obviously the yeah, list of people are, but yeah, who, with, who with the, who well, the well, So, with Elaine Bedell, who's mm. the chair, you talk about it and then you make the approach. But it's the advisory chair's job to land the McTaggart. It's your biggest booking, really, isn't it? Is, it? Yeah. Your biggest headache. Yeah, because um, it sort of it then, it then begins to define yeah. what you want the, the festival to be about. Well, let's take a look at what she said. Uh, it, it was a McTaggart of three halves, if you'll forgive me that, and uh, I will elucidate uh, in time. But, Dan, take the first half. It's all about James Murdoch, the references to the troubles at News International. I mean, that was, in a sense, uh, only one page of a, of a long speech, but, you know, it, it, that sort of grabbed the headlines and, and grabbed the imagination. Well, that was, the, that was all, yeah, the middle phase of the, uh, the speech, and that was clearly, you know, the, the bit that w uh, journalists, we journalists were going to extract, because... We, you know, we come here with one story in mind, really, or, or we're going to view this speech through one prism, which is, what did you say about the sort of phone hacking uh, situation, the fallout, the state of the company and the state of family relations? And she emphatically did not disappoint. I, I thought the phrases would be, you know, more subtle and more, 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 more oblique. Uh, uh, that reference would be much shorter and we sort of, we'd be sort of working three paragraphs to death. In fact, she sort of talked about it over a couple of pages. And although I think it was clearly a hard speech to write, we're told that she wrote, very, she very much wrote it personally. It was clearly very hard for her to write. And, and uh, you know, with that in mind, and her, I think, not being a natural, you know, not being a full-time writer, some, some of the phraseology was still a bit coded and a bit nuanced, but she was very clear about, you know, you could see what the direction of travel was incredibly critical of what her brother James had said three years earlier uh, you know sort of profit without purpose is a sort of recipe for disaster uh, and a clear reference to James Murdoch's famous conclusion the only reliable you know guarantor of independence is profit of three years ago and a clear sort of reference to a much broader non-market-based wider than the market morality you know if you like when I think when a Murdoch bails out of neoliberalism then neoliberalisms may have a problem and she talked also about the uh, an unsettling dearth of integrity, which was a reference to, we presume, phone, you know, the phone hacking in there. Well, absolutely. And she made a sort of very broad and rather sort of hard to sort of bite on, if you like, uh, a reference to sort of what News Corp need to, needed to do. Uh, it needed to sort of codify, you know, have a sort of clear, more clearly understood set of rules uh, and to get people and abide by them. But that was really so sort of chatting to people who are close to her. The, the sense or the meaning of that was meant to be, I think, for too long, News Corp was sort of company ruled by the sense of what would Rupert do, what would Rupert think? And then everyone would sort of second-guess their interpretation of that uh, or, or act their interpretation of that. And, and what, what she's saying is, no, we, we need to be much clearer about what our values and ethics are and we need to stick to them. And News Corp didn't do that. Lorraine, what did you make of the overall tone of the speech? It was very... Um 
uh, sort of inclusive, it was kind of feel good, almost kind of evangelical uh, at, at times, you know, kind yeah, of felt like I wanted to vote for her, but she's not really standing in an election. Well, it was, yes. I think she is, I think she is kind of standing in an election, actually. Mm. You know, I think she's a very, very clever woman and a very skillful operator. And she would have thought very carefully about giving the McTaggart, particularly this year. And the one word that I would say for me sums up what she's done is bravery. You know, brave to step outside the family firm and set up Shine all on her own, putting herself on the line. It, you know, it has worked really, really well, but it might not have done. Brave to choose the, to do the McTaggart this year rather than any other year, because you know, although this morning when Steve Hewlett was you know, grilling her really well. She did say, well, I thought we were going to speak about television. And of course, it was all about the Murdoch family and phone hacking and all that, the fallout from that. You know, she didn't have to expose herself in that way to all these questions from the whole industry, from the press. You know, this is a goldfish bowl here. If you say anything, it's going to get widely reported. So I think that was very brave. The thing that still puzzles me is, given that she sort of proved herself by setting up Shine, why, and apart from money, and maybe that was it, why sell back to the family firm? Because she was trying to, in a way, Shine was a declaration of independence. And obviously, with the benefit of hindsight, I'm sure she wishes she hadn't sold at that particular time. Because whichever way you look at it, News Corp is tarnished. And the values of the Murdochs are tarnished. And yes, she can make a stand and, you know, she wasn't involved. But she needn't have been tarred with any brush whatsoever if she'd sold to Sony or to Warners well, or I think the explanation for that was in the speech it was slightly buried and it's to do with rights ownership and, and the deal she's done with News Corp has enabled her to keep a distribution company and if you deal a deal with a other Hollywood studio they will not allow you to return your rights and I think what what we should keep an eye on there is what the what happens to that distribution company particularly in North America because I, th I, I think, I think there are some clues there about some long-term ambitions for North American growth in the business. And Sony you know, will take all your rights and become your distributor. And that's not the arrangement that Shine had with News Corp. But sell at all? You know, she's not short of money. Well, she I think she could have lots, carried yeah, on I, I growing it. She would have access to I, capital. I agree. But it's not just about her, is it? There are, there are a number of people who enter that business who want to see a return on their, on their, on their, on their participation in that business, the, right, the Jane yeah. Featherstones and Stephen yeah. Garrett's and, and, and those other companies she's bought want to see some return on that. There was Sony as they've well. Had, they've had an well. event, but... They've had a return. Yeah. I'm sure they're on, yeah. you know, all sorts well, I'm sure of they've all done very well. Also, she was going to go on the board. She was going to go on the board. Yeah. And I think yeah. uh, the other reason she sold to News Corp, which, I mean, and I might be airbrushed out of history now, is she was going to go on the board of News Corp and she was going to have more influence yeah. in the company yeah. in a formal way. Yeah. And what happened was she sold it exactly, in a way, she sold it at the wrong time, phone hacking happened, she fell out of step with the family, yeah. she's not on the board. And I think she would she would rather like to have Shine back. And she has done a good deal, yeah. But that's what right. I mean, but that's what I mean within the speech. No, but within the speech. No, but within the speech where she, you know, the, the one more honest step to take would have been, actually, I wish I hadn't sold it at that time. She can't say that. I wish well, she had. Maybe she doesn't mm. think that. Well, maybe she doesn't. I, mean, I, I, think, well, I think obviously journalists are obsessed with news international and all of that. But I, I, what I wish she'd spent a bit more time talking about were when she's going to talk about the Simpsons and Glee and Avatar and Titanic, and you realise the the power of of News Corp as a creative company and those huge successes they've had in IP in creating these these, these monstrous uh, international hits. 
we're obsessed about News International, but that business is immensely big and powerful overseas. Mm. And I think that, that gets overlooked constantly while we're obsessing about a very small bit of the News Corps empire. That was the second of my three halves. I fear the I'm third. I, well, I fear the third might be, might be lost to history. But uh, we shouldn't ignore the end of the speech, which got onto the importance of the, the digital era, which is yeah. nothing new, but she talked about the second screen. And I guess the danger is that that gets overshadowed by what you said, what the, what, what the journalists kind of grab onto. But there were some, there were some important but, messages there. There's some, there's some very important messages there. And she talked about, she talked this morning about Jamal Edwards, who they, they have a relationship with, who has, I think, 150 million hits across his websites. He's a direct-to-consumer. This notion of direct-to-consumer broadcasting, which she is saying is the next, you know, the next iteration of our business. And they're doing a lot of work at Shine on that. And I think, I think the, the trouble is when you start talking about that, there's a tendency for all of us as television executives to slightly... Uh, glaze over and go here we go we're talking about things that we don't necessarily completely understand but I think she gave some great clues there as to what Shine will be doing in terms of creating content that, um, that doesn't need a broadcaster we, in fact we have a session at the festival which is who needs a commissioner anyway and it's about that straight to the audience program making she was very frustrated a couple of years ago she really wanted to get into social gaming uh, uh, and is still very interested in gaming I'm sure and there was a company called Playfish, which was uh, snapped up by Electronic Arts, actually, game, yeah. you know, uh, sort of casual gaming company, Facebook games, this sort of thing. And she's really interested in that whole area of inter- interactivity. Uh, big fan of Clay Shirky and his book, Here Comes yeah. Everybody. So she sort of, when she talks about that area, that's not just a bit of sort of social media lipstick kind of put on at the kind of end, end of the speech to look like she's forward thinking it's, it, it's no, very no. much at the heart of what she's doing oh, it's just um, nobody's really cracked she didn't talk about Channel Flip it. which she bought last year which is a, which is a direct to consumer you know broadcaster and I think we all feel that there is going to be a leap forward at some stage we don't know when it is one of the reasons probably why Kenton and I are firmly in the content camp is that you know that whatever happens on whatever platform in whichever manner content is going to be really really important and what's exciting is that if you come up with a great idea and you can't find a home for it there is a home for it you can put it up there it's a long-term game you've got to be prepared to invest you've got to be prepared to experiment if you put a bit of money behind it something might stick and eventually you can see a world in which if you had the right property and that might be a big celebrity and that's the sort of thing that Channel Flip have done with comedians but you know if you imagine that Simon Cowell decided that the next show with him on it was gonna launch on YouTube and he would get sponsors to back it they would be falling over themselves he would have exactly the same budget he wouldn't have you know any mediation from commissioners he wouldn't have to give away the advertising revenue or anything like that and he said you know okay at seven o'clock you know UK time I'm gonna launch my show you can bet people watch or bigger still you know seven o'clock US time and we would all tune in and everybody will be able to watch it at different stages. And that has to happen sooner or later. It hasn't happened yet. And it may happen on YouTube or it may happen on another platform. And I think that's what Liz is talking about. We are living in a very dynamic and exciting environment where it feels like there are so many opportunities and so many different ways that we can um, deliver content. And, you know, developing this... It feels like if Apple launched the Apple TV, you know, the the, the television equivalent to to the iPod, that's maybe the moment where you can go and buy a one-box Apple solution that you hang on the wall, and you can then just watch YouTube. Well, maybe that's that can, you know, you can. The connected TV yeah. is here. It's still not quite the the, the, the the has the brilliant simplicity of, of an Apple 
solution to it. So, you know, we have another session at the, at the festival about connected TV, where all Xbox and uh, 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 Google are demonstrating their versions of the connected TV. But that moment is coming. And I think Liz is wants to be on the front foot when it happens. Could yeah. be the story of next year's festival, or, or maybe the one after that. Anyway, well, Kenton Allen, I've got to stop you there, Lorraine. <laughs> well, yeah, good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, it's more Lorraine Hegarty available on YouTube. Yes. <laughs> Thank you very much to Lorraine Hegarty and to Dan Saver and Kent Snellman. So I'm joined by Richard Bacon, Five Live presenter and uh, all-round t- TV good guy, and uh, Dan Saver, Guardian's head of media and tech. Richard, what did you make of the press response to last night's Spectacular? Uh, the first thing to say is I'm a huge fan, Dan, of your work and the work oh, of the oh, Media yeah, Guardian. No, no, yeah, yeah, That's yeah, point yeah. one. Where is this going? Point two is the Media Guardian has some searching questions to ask itself this morning. This headline, I don't agree with. Elizabeth Murdoch rounds on her brother. The, the FT's reporting has a more nuanced and, I think, sensible uh, headline. Elizabeth contradicts her brother's stance. She contradicted her brother's stance mm when he said that the only guarantor of independence is profit. She did it, you've written it up in this sort of dramatic Shakespearean way that I don't, I don't think it is. I think in some ways the Murdoch story is perhaps analogous to, to the odd Shakespeare story, but her, Leo, being, one, yeah. but her being slightly more nuanced, offering a more nuanced version of her brother's position on what profit can achieve, is, that's not from King Lear, Dan. I don't know. Well, for, look, in no particular order. We're, we are in the entertainment business. This is a very strange, you know, yeah. what she chose to do, yeah. the way she chose to frame her remarks, she was being really sort of, you know, she was really being really tough on James Murdoch. She devoted the whole page to say, how, how, let me, let me tell the, let me spell out the ways I disagree with what you said in your McTaggart three years ago. Uh, uh, so but, I but, think. But if, look, look, Dan, no, no, but, really this, but this is. From a, uh, from, a, from a sister to a, what, to a brother in public. There was public. some strong stuff in there. It was a good speech. It was a human speech. I think her talking about the market can't sort everything out. You can't just rely on the market to turn things around. Uh, and that was good. That was very un Murdoch, I thought. It was very uncapitalist and uncorporatist in some ways. And that was really interesting. All I'm saying is yes, she criticised something her brother said, but it was. It was quite nuanced, and I don't think it was as dramatic as that. Now, I understand you've got stories are, to sell. We are in a drama business. I know. I know why you've done it, Dan. Mm. I'm just offering my own opinion. And I didn't you, when I walked out of the hall last night, I, as usual, I went straight on the Media Guardian, being such a big fan of the Media Guardian. Um, and I think your first headline was Elizabeth Murdoch rounds on her brother and her father. That's right. Now, my interpretation of the speech was that she, she praised her father. Which is why we changed the headline. Oh, so the headline was wrong. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, right, okay. We totally accept, I totally accept that. What, what happened, the, the thing that did happen behind the scenes was that the, the first headline was, as you described, that Liz Murdoch rounds on her, on, on her father and her brother. And then, uh, uh, as we like to say, us journalists like to say, we don't write the headlines. The some editors write the headlines. Did anyway. you get a sat on? Did Matthew Freud call you or Liz or what happened? Yeah, you're you getting the idea. So uh, What happened? Tell us. Take us no, behind no, no. the scenes. It sounds a bit Shakespearean to me. Listen, uh, Liz complained. Adam Rusbridge is the editor. He's up, in, uh, 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 he's up here in at the Edinburgh Television Festival. Uh, big fan of the festival, big fan of yours, no doubt. I sat opposite him at dinner last Well, there night. you go. Uh, look, she complained to Alan and said, you know, I, there was a passage in my speech where I specifically praised my father and that your, your reporter, well, yours truly, but one has to try and be modest here, actually put that in the speech and made it quite clear that Liz, you know, 
and sees herself perhaps as the true heir of her father, I don't know, but very, very much sort of competing for his affection and attention and very much praising him. And look, she said it was plain wrong, and we agreed it was plain wrong. And okay. you know, when, okay. you, when, you, when you're wrong, we, we move and shuffle fast. You're wrong many but, times myself. But, Dan, we, don't, it, but we don't it, think it's wrong about no. her brother. And look, do you know what? It's just an interpretation. It's not that big a deal. I, it's not, all I'm saying is, it's not how it came across to me. And I suppose from her point of view, if you wanted to make that speech, and you thought, do you know what? I'd quite like to pick my brother up on something. I bet she thinks to herself, it's going to be impossible for me to do that without journalists saying I'm plunging the knife into my brother's back. And I wonder, I just wonder if that is going a well, bit too I think, look, she's taking, you know, James Murdoch came here three years ago. He made a very strident, yeah. aggressive wow. speech. He, you know, criticised the BBC, talked about chilling effect, had a go at Ofcom, you know, attacked all, you know, a whole series of suspects. And at that point, you know, it ended with this now legendary payoff line, you know, the only reliable, perpetual and durable guarantor of independence is profit. Profit was the only measure that you could judge, you know, media success, media quality, media morality almost. And that, you know, it was... She, Liz Murdoch said it was provocative. James Murdoch didn't mean it to mean what, what, what you know, what the sort of direct detractor said. But nevertheless, an incredibly controversial statement. She had to take aim at it. I, th- I think the story today, and I think this will be interesting, is in the postman tag Q&A that I just went to, Steve Hewlett said to her, did you say privately that you thought at the height of phone hacking that James should step back from the company uh, and that Rebecca Brooks should resign? And she agreed with that. And I wonder, sitting in the audience, if she meant to agree with the second half of that statement and didn't realise that she'd agreed with the first half of the statement. The headlines now will say, Liz admitted that she thought James should step back. And I'm not sure she really meant that. Um, so we'll have, to, we'll have to see how it plays and whether she issues some kind of retraction. And Dan, before you go, we've seen rather more of Prince Harry than we've seen before today. Yeah, it's taken two days, but the son have done it. Here it is, here it is, here it is. Anyway, uh, uh, mock-up yesterday, there he is, Prince Harry, you know, cupping his gentleman's vegetables or his royal vegetables and uh, looking, away, looking away from the camera. In a way, it's, worked, it's almost worked better for the son, you can argue, because, you know, we've had one day of build-up and now paper's taken the plunge and if anyone was going to do it, uh, you know, the son, as, a, as a typically sort of the bravest of the, of the red tops. This is going to be hugely controversial, of course, but the, the Sun's defence is that it's in the public interest. Did you see that? Does that hold water? It's in, well, let, let's try this, eh? Uh, uh, it's, it's certainly in the public domain, and I think at that point, uh, uh, why should Clarence House have the right to sort of restrict f- freely circulating images? And I think that's what's, you know, that's what's in the public interest, or to put it the other way around, censorship is certainly not in the public interest. Uh, uh, you know, we have a right to know what Prince Harry gets up to. He's third in line to the throne. He's a royal prince. Uh, yes, he's on holiday, and yes, he's a young man, but he's got protection officers. He's funded probably by the taxpayer. He's an army officer even. So there's plenty of, re- I think there's plenty of arguable reasons why uh, we might want to know about Prince Harry, but above all, the cork is out of the bottle. And just finally, Lord Leveson reading the sun over his boiled eggs, I'm guessing on the boiled eggs. Uh, How's this going to feed into his inquiry, do you think? Well, look, very interesting. Look, theoretically, although I think it's very, very unlikely Lord Leveson can ask for a bit more uh, info from from the sun and interested parties and from Clarence House and so on, uh, and and maybe have even some mini hearings Frankly, I just doubt it. I think a lot of people would love him to step in, a lot of critics of, of the judge and his inquiry, uh, because they want to argue, or, or what the doomsayers want to argue, is that Lord Leveson's had a chilling effect on journalism. Well, the sun doesn't look like it's been very chilled this morning.
And this Murdoch said today that she would have gone ahead and published had she been in charge of News International. I, I, I think, uh, you know, uh, a relief for Dominic Moen there. Uh, I think had she gone the other way, we'd all be rushing to the keyboards and, and you know, be more splits in the family and another big story. So uh, Liz Murdoch, once again, is absolutely right. As she said herself, she uh, checked out the pictures of Prince Harry online and I think concluded that, that he was a cute guy. Well, more Harry to come, no doubt, tomorrow. Uh, Dan Sabah and Richard Bacon, thanks very much. Away from the McTaggart now, there's been lots of talk at the festival about the Paralympics and Channel 4's coverage, which begins next week. I caught up with one of Channel 4's Paralympics presenters, stand-up comic Adam Hills, and this is what he had to say. Well, Channel 4 have really brought some edge to the Paralympics, and I think because, because Channel 4 haven't done the Olympics, they're, they're concentrating solely on the Paralympics, they're going to make it look amazing. And for me, I'm hosting a, a highlights package every night, which is... Look, it's, it's going to find the joy in the Paralympics because it is it's such a joyous event to be a part of. I was at the Beijing Paralympics and it was so celebratory and so upbeat. So we're going to try and bring that to television. Also make, it, uh, make people feel comfortable watching and talking about the Paralympics, not worrying about what they've said wrong and also celebrating the athletes. Because you bring an, an, an edge to the coverage, I think it's fair to say, isn't it? I mean, the, the, the name of the, your programme itself is uh, it hints at a kind of Channel 4 kind of mischief. Yeah, the show's called The Last Leg. I have an artificial foot. My right foot's missing since birth. I think I'm, I want to get a card printed up with a foot on it, and at least once a night I will actually play the foot card. <laughs> I think there'll be, there'll be certain things that I can say and get away with. It's your joker. And it is my joker in the pack. It's my get-out-of-jail-free card. So there'll be moments where I can go, no, do you know what? I'm allowed to say stuff like this. I've got one foot. And I think you'll find you're allowed to say stuff like this too. And you're bringing an aspect to the Olympics, that, or the Paralympics, I should say, that, uh, that people are familiar with. But, uh, I mean, are you doing it for sort of comedic purposes or is, is, is it a celebration? I mean, I'm, I'm anticipating maybe some people might be uncomfortable with that. I became quite evangelical after the Beijing Paralympics. I was really touched by what I saw and it... I found life-affirming was the only word I could describe for it. And it's not just, oh, my God, they're amazing. They've overcome disabilities and hurdles. It's like, this is just the most amazing thing I've ever seen. I incorporated it into my stand-up routine straight away because I wanted to tell more people about it. I wanted to say, oh, my God, I need to tell you what I've just seen. It was awesome. To be honest, that's probably the attitude that's going to sum up our highlight show. At, at the end of every day, it'll be basically be me going, oh, my God, did you see what happened today? It was amazing. But in a kind of... This is incredible attitude, basically. But also, it's funny. You know, it's funny. You, you've got some events where you've got people, you've got a whole line of prosthetic limbs at the edge of the pool. <laughs> you know, at the end of the lane, there's, there's people's iPods that they've just taken off, their training tops, and there's a leg. And there's some guy that has to collect them all and put them in a basket and then dole them out again afterwards. That's kind of funny, but not in a, not in a ridiculing kind of way. In a, wow, this is an elite athlete, but this is life also you know, keeping them humble at the same time. Well, I figure this may involve the pool, given your last answer, but a particular event you're looking forward to? Actually, my favourite event is the wheelchair basketball. It is genuinely more violent than able-bodied basketball. It's faster because clearly they're on wheels. I would even say there's a higher skill level involved because you're kind of... You know, I saw someone do a flick pass behind a wheelchair and then the person, the girl who caught it, then tipped up on one wheel and shot a three-pointer. I had a moment of going, did I just see that? I now find that I'm getting a little bit preachy about it, which I have to stop. But it really was truly astounding, the things that I saw in Beijing. That's all we have time for from the festival today. My thanks to Lorraine Hegesy, Kenton Allen, Richard Bacon and Dan Sabah. 
Media Talk is produced by Matt Hill. If you want to see what we look like, as well as sound like, we're filming the podcast here in the conference centre with a very groovy semicircular sofa. Then go to our video at mediaguardian.co.uk. We're back tomorrow with our third daily festival podcast. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio. Don't you Brits feel like celebrating those 14 days of sporting glory? Of course you do. So why not do it with a strictly unofficial but suitably stylish philosophy football design t-shirt? This unique t-shirt is a wearable, chronological and color-coded record of an unforgettable fortnight. And for Guardian and Observer podcast fans, we have a special offer of three pounds off and free post and packaging. Curious? Well, to see how good this unique t-shirt looks and to take advantage of our listeners' offer, just go to guardian.co.uk slash podcast offers. I dare you.